You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. The question I keep asking myself, I do ask this periodically, is um, why didn't the second Advent just happen at the first Advent? Advent means a coming or an arrival, and so we, we talk about the first advent of Christ, that Christmas, the thing we just talked about, and then you know his second advent that he will return. And so periodically, I just ask the question, why didn't he just do that the first time? Why did Jesus actually come to earth? And um, if, if you just ask a you know, man on the street, so to speak, you might get a whole bunch of different answers. You might get he came to bring peace so we could learn how to live in uh, peace and harmony with each other. He came to, uh, I've, I've had someone not here say, he came to really upset the, uh, the religious institutions of the day, which is why I don't go to church, is what he said. So I think you're stretching there a little bit, buddy, but all right. Um, and that's not the reason why he came. Um, I, I think probably the main reason that I hear about why did Jesus come to earth that people just sort of give is um, he came to set an example of how we're supposed to live. He did live perfectly. If you want to know what perfect obedience to God the Father looks like, you can see the life of Jesus. If you're trying to figure what ought I do, what, what should I do in this situation, you can probably think what would Jesus do in this instance, and that can be good guidance for you. But he is so much more, and he did so much more than just come to go uh, uh, watch me live and then try and do it like I did it. Like If that's all you think about Jesus, that breeds pharisaical living, doesn't it? Here's the list of all the things you're supposed to do. Here's the way you're supposed to do it. Now just go out and try and white-knuckle your way through life and be perfect like Jesus was. And actually, um, the, the reason Jesus came, the, Jesus came and lived this perfect life. And yes, he is a model, but that's not the main reason he came. I'll show you in just a second. He's going to tell us why he came. You just heard it read why he came. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the Father, and one of the reasons is we see what Jesus did, and we know how we live, and we go, I can never be perfect like Jesus was perfect. And it's supposed to make us cry out for a, uh, in need to be saved. When we say Jesus just came to give us an example of what we're supposed to do, we greatly shortchange what Jesus actually came to do. He's way more than just a good example of how to live. Why did he come? And the very short answer is God saves sinners. That is the news of the gospel. That is the good news that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save people like me and people like you. And what you'll see today is he came to save even this wee little man named Zacchaeus. Let me show you this. And I love that this isn't even a parable. A parable is a story where you know, Jesus goes, uh, let, let me give you an illustration. This is a true story of something that happened about Zacchaeus. So you see in, ver in verse 1, it says, Jesus, it says, he, I, I put Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, not to brag, but I have been to Jericho and I rode a camel in Jericho, I have to say. <laughs> I got on this camel. The guy was like, yeah, get on the camel. And he kind of talked to me like, you know, camel, you know what to do. And I got on the camel as though I've ride camels all the time. And I got on the camel and then the guy, let's just say he probably wouldn't have passed the U.S. safety standards for this type of thing. Uh, I went about a mile a month around this thing very, very slowly on this camel. I did a little loop. I got off. He wasn't even paying attention. I almost just, boom, head over heels right off the front. And uh, I got off, and he's like, 20 bucks. And I was like, wow, this is a good racket you got going here. 
But I'm like, I'm in Jericho, and the guy's like, you want to ride a camel? I'm like, of course I want to ride a camel. If I went back, I'd ride a camel again. Right? You're in Jericho. They say, do you want to ride a camel? Your answer is always yes. So we got to do this. It was actually one of the most fascinating places when we went to the Holy Land to go and to get to visit. Um, it is one of, if not the most um, oldest, consistently inhabited cities in the world, this city of Jericho. And there's three main reasons for it. One is um, the roads. Even a long time ago, there were roads that went by right by Jericho, so a lot of people would pass through it. Some of them went west from there to Jerusalem. There was water there. There was a spring we see in 2 Kings called the Fountain of Elijah. There was a long, uh, for centuries, there was this big water channel that would carry water from this spring. So it became this lush green area, striking contrast to the very dry surroundings. According to the historian Josephus, at the time of Christ, he calls uh, Jericho a paradise. It's a very lush place. The climate was a big reason for that. It's a third reason. It was um, pretty hot in the summer, but it was very warm in the winter. And so Herod the Great and some of his successors actually moved the capital. He was a snowbird. He went during the winter, he went over to Jericho because it was Phoenix. It was uh, warmer in the winter. Now, I'll just give you a quick note. Um, as you look, you'll, uh, you'll see sort of two different Jerichos. You'll see um, Old Testament Jericho, and then you'll see um, a little bit to the, uh, let's see, the south of that, I think. I think Old Testament was here, and then Roman Jerichos, uh, they moved it just a little bit. And so, so that helps us when we see like Jesus, like he, he left Jericho, and then it says he entered Jericho, and you're going, what's happening? He's probably leaving Roman Jericho, entering um, ancient Jericho, that kind of a thing. But really, if you talk to someone today, that whole, they're about a mile apart. The region is really this area of Jericho. Um, and then in Jesus' day, there were three tax centers. The northern one was in Capernaum. The middle was in um, Caesarea on the coast. And then the southern center of taxation was in Jericho. And it became the winter capital of the uh, kingdom. And so this is the setting by which we meet this man. It says, Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And we learn two things about him here. It says, one, he was a tax collector, and two, he was rich. I'm sorry, I left that out. He's a chief tax collector. That's actually important. It's archetelones is the word, and arche is, it can mean first or beginning or like an archway, like it's the highest uh, and then Telones is tax collector, and so he is the, uh, this is the only time this word appears in our Bible, but he is the chief tax collector. He is the highest tax collector. And we've been talking about tax collectors several times over the last few weeks because they're evil. In their day, they were evil. They would talk about tax collectors and sinners. And so just to give you an idea of what was happening. Rome could set a price and the tax collector could do whatever he wanted. The people didn't really have a clue how much they were actually supposed to pay anyway. It was a very complicated tax code, and so it was this recipe for just fraud, recipe for temptation. So some examples. Um, there was an individual tax on males ages 14 to 65, and on females 12 to 65, there was a ground track tax, like a property tax. It was like a tenth of all your grain, a fifth of all the wine and oil. Then there was some income tax of about 1%, um, but you could really like tax anything you wanted. So somebody comes by, and they're in a cart, and you can go to take the cart down the road. That'll be, they look rich, $10, whatever it is. You just, you just make up a number, and they have to pay it. Oh, you have two axles, you have four wheels, so that's going to be, 
this much. You've got a donkey. Oh, you got a donkey pulling it. Donkey taxes this much. And they would just tax whatever, and no one knew what the code was, and so they would just, uh, they would just have to pay it or suffer whatever consequences. He was a, um, there, there's absolutely no incentive to be fair. In fact, there's every incentive for them to be unethical, and so historically they absolutely were. They would go pluck them up from the Jews and then set them right back down and say, now go be a traitor to your people and extort them for money. <clears throat> I imagine when the tax collector, especially the chief tax collector, came to town that mothers hid their children, that doors slammed, that doors locked tight, and they did not want him to come to their house. And what you need to hear is we would look and say, there's nothing good about this guy. There's nothing redemptive in him. He is earning his living off the hard work of former friends. They couldn't attend synagogue. They had no social relationships. They were unclean. Um, they would be so, uh, so thought to be so ritually uh, impure. That's why over throughout the Gospels you hear uh, the, the, the um, sinners and tax collectors put in the same group. We're the holy ones, they're the unholy ones, the sinners, the tax collectors. They put them all in the same group. <clears throat> so he is the chief tax collector, and then it says <clears throat> he was rich. About 10 verses earlier, if you remember, this is when you're reading the Bible, it's good. I, like, I'd like to tell people, memorize Scripture, but my input would be, instead of just memorizing a verse here and a verse there and a verse there, memorize chunks of Scripture. Instead of memorizing 10 individual verses, memorize a chunk of 10 verses. Because remember, the Bible wasn't written with bumper stickers just sort of splattered throughout. The Bible is written as um, letters or as, as history or as historical narrative. And so if you look through, if you take something and you get it in its context, it makes a lot more sense. And it just says he was a tax collector and he spent the last several chapters talking about how horrible tax collectors are. And then it says he was rich. And right before this, he had said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So he's just talked about tax collectors. Then he's talked about how impossible it is. He says, um, you know, if you, we talked a few weeks ago, like wealth can make us not realize our actual need for God. We think this life is all there is. I've got all my stuff, so I'm good. And he says, it's difficult. And then he opens up this story about Zacchaeus and doesn't just say he's a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. And then he emphasizes he's not just a chief tax collector, he, probably because of what he did, is rich. In context, what we're about to see is a miracle. Look at verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. We went to, I remember we went to Disney one time, and um, I wanted to, we wanted to see the parade, and we had little kids, and so we all, like, we ran. I'm like, come on, let's get back. Where does the parade start? And we, like, ran to the, be the beginning of the parade, and my wife was like, you know, it's the same parade a little ways down. I was like, yeah, of course I know that. I was silly, of course. And so 
We thought, hey, the parades go, where's the parade route? And so we ran ahead, and then we got good seats because everybody was like me going, we got to get there at the very beginning. And she's like, same parade, buddy. And so we went, and so we got actually like great seats. We went ahead knowing where he was going. And that's what Zacchaeus looks like he's doing here, that he's seeing the parade route, so to speak, and he's running ahead, but he's still, there's so many people there. He's going, people are going to come over there, and I'm not going to be able to see Jesus. And so he climbs up in this tree to try and see him. Picture how undignified this is for a man wearing this like robe in that day to climb the tree. You're admitting you're short. You're hiking this thing up and you're figuring out how to climb up in a tree sort of hidden behind it. If people see you, you're famous and they hate you. And here he is hiding in a tree, peering out to get a glimpse of Jesus. He's wealthy, famous, and hated, but he wants to see the king of the Jews. He hears maybe about the miracles of God that are being done through him, and there's some, even in that day, they're saying he's doing amazing, amazing, miraculous things. And so I just have to wonder how much Zacchaeus knew. And if he's looking and going, the religious leaders in the day hate me. They've kicked me out. If they were to come and shake my hand, give me a hug, greet me with a kiss, realize then who I am, be in my house, they are ceremonially unclean. And here's this one that's the king of the Jews. He might even be divine with the miracles he's doing. Listen, if his followers seem to hate me, surely their God hates me as well. And look at what happens. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. Just pause on that for a moment. Probably think you're pretty well hidden. Little guy hiding up in a tree, looking to try and see Jesus. There's crowds all over of like normal-sized people, like tall people that are there. There's all these people around. And in that moment, we don't have a record of like Zacchaeus like hollering anything out to him or anything like that. He's just there peering in and just wanting to see someone that honestly, I believe in the back of his mind, he's going, this guy probably hates me. And Jesus looks up and I just picture him locking eyes with Zacchaeus. But it's not just that. Next it says, He said to him, he spoke to him, and then, and maybe it's because he's notorious in the day, but he says his name, Zacchaeus, and then goes even farther, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house today is I'm spending the night at your place. This was normal in the culture, different from if I just saw you and said, hey, by the way, I'm going to crash at your place tonight, all right? This is normal in the culture. What's not normal is for someone who's Jewish to go to this um, wealthy uh, betrayer of his people and say, I am going to go and be with you. So what did Zacchaeus do? Verse 6 says, he hurried down and he came down and received him joyfully. And when they, I think the religious people in the crowd here, saw it, they all grumbled. And here's what they said. They said, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. In Luke's gospel earlier, Luke chapter 7, it says, The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This guy is the double whammy. And Jesus going to his house... 
um, they are saying you are giving approval to him and to what he is doing. And what we're going to see, Jesus goes to his house. He does not give approval to what he is doing. But they thought if you go sit with somebody that thinks differently, you are automatically approving of everything about them. There was a picture, I think this is a couple years ago now, but Ellen DeGeneres and George Bush. Did you see this picture? Hollywood Democrat, Republican president were at a Dallas Cowboys football game. And this picture went online. And as you can imagine, Twitter didn't like it very much. So much so that Ellen got up on her show and she had to, she, she sort of apologized, but not really. I actually, I actually, in my humble opinion, I thought she actually handled it pretty well. They, they probably disagree on absolutely everything. But the reason she got blasted on social media and the reason she had to stand up and explain to people, I still disagree with him, but he can still be my friend. Like she had to actually say those words. Some things that, that um, you know, 20 years ago in our culture, I feel like you could, you could do that. We could be with people and people wouldn't go, oh my gosh, I can't believe that he or she thinks everything that person's doing is great. This little picture of two people who disagree on something watching a football game caused quite a stir, and she had to explain, just because I'm with him doesn't mean I always agree with him. Or I always see, like, when I see pictures online, like, a, um, like it'll have a picture of a politician, and then in the background it'll have, like, you know, some politician will be smiling and talking, and then in the background there's, like, a, some guy, and then it says, the guy in the back is a, a known member of the KKK, and then it shows the politician, it shows some guy in the background, and they're all sort of just, you know, they're all kind of laughing, not even talking to each other, and just putting that person in the same picture as somebody like that, the idea behind it is, look, he's with him, therefore he's bad. That's our world today. One of the things you see Jesus do over and over and over is he goes to where people are, he goes to people that need to repent. He goes to the people that need him desperately the most. Jesus had this ability to sit with people and love them dearly as people and not affirm every single thing about them. We today, we have such a guilt by association and just stretching of anything to try and tie somebody to somebody else. And then we go, therefore, they are out of my life. And Jesus does this incredible thing of just constantly going to people that culture is even saying you shouldn't go to, and he's going to them to minister to them. It is hard to evangelize, and it's hard to minister to the lost if our strategy is never talk to them. If our strategy is never to go where they are, if our strategy is never to be with them, it makes it very difficult to evangelize. I guess you could email, you could text or something like that, I don't know. But what Jesus does is he makes a beeline for him. Now I say that, but I need to give you a couple caveats here. He is going to them to help them repent and to help them to see the light, so to speak. He is not just going to them, to them and just sitting with them in their sin to help normalize it. Um, and I'll, I'll show you what I mean, a couple examples. Um, this is a special, I don't know if it's a big, as big a deal here. I know when I was working in, as in student ministry, the um, females in like high school and college especially would do, we called it missionary dating, which was uh, I'm dating a guy and he's not a Christian, but I'm going to change him. 
I'm going to lead them to faith in Christ. And so they would go, and, and the mindset was like, I want to be loving, I want to go. And that's where we would have to go. I get what you're doing. Like, I love your heart behind it, if that really is like your motivation. But careful. You can't use the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus to go, look, so I can missionary date. That's not, that's not um, what Jesus is calling us to. I, I think of, um, there's certain weddings, I've been invited to weddings that I will not go to. Because as I am there, I am in the congregation and I am giving my support and lending my joy to what's happening. And if this is something that God is clearly not rejoicing in, I'll have to say, I can't, I can't go and have the fullness of joy with you. So I, I don't just go like when Jesus went to Zacchaeus, although I could be with them as individuals, that might be a ceremony that I wouldn't go to or be a part of. Um, or uh, like I know some people that, uh, I remember when I was in college, there were a couple, a couple of the girls that said they wanted to join a sorority, and the reason they were joining is because they wanted to go and, um, and you know, be a light in the sorority, and, um, which is noble and wonderful. Although a couple of years in, they looked more like the other girls in the sorority than they did like Christ. And I'm speaking from a perspective of, when did I graduate, 90 something, I don't know, 97 or so from TCU, the fraternities and sororities where I was, it was like animal house. Like it was the party, like, that, like that's what it was. And they said, we want to go be a part of it. And I thought, that's really good and that's really noble. But what happened was, and this is the warning we have to have, is our wicked minds can justify anything and understand what Jesus is doing is not just saying, just go be a part of the utter debauchery. What he's saying is go to the lost people and help rescue them. That's what Jesus is doing all throughout this. I want to be somebody that, I, like when somebody, when I find out they disagree with me, even on something that is so just deep and something that I hold so dear, I hope that I can disagree without dishonoring them. That's what we're called to do. How do we know if our being with the lost people is, because um, it's kind of a gray area, so do I go, do I not, how much do I invest? One of the measures is do they actually repent? Are we helping them see the beauty of Christ? And that's what Zacchaeus, that's what happened to Zacchaeus. Look at this. So after Jesus, um, has, after they've all grumbled, he's gone to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. This is repentance. This is changing. He's been hoarding, and you're only supposed to have to give 10%, and he's going, I'm giving 50% to the poor. This is his response to the grace of Jesus Christ. Then he says, if I've defrauded anyone of anything, the norm was you repay it or you repay it double. He says, I restore it fourfold. Like this is genuine transformation that has happened. And so Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Simply meeting Jesus, Jesus noticing him. The grace of Jesus to do just that was transformative. And we just got to see the impossible happen. The chief tax collector, one of the wealthiest in his time, came to faith. Why do we have the first advent? Why did Jesus come to earth? He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Why did he come? That is it. Jesus says, we don't have to come up with a reason that we think he came. He came to seek and save 
the lost. And this is very consistent with the nature of the God that we serve because God is a seeker and a saver of the lost. That's who he is by nature. Let me read you from Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel's quoting God. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with a good pasture on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture, pasture <clears throat> excuse me, they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. God's a seeker and a saver of the lost. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this. Paul writes to Timothy and says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world, why? To save sinners. And then Paul says, of whom I, Paul, the parentheses are mine, am the foremost. He came to save us. That's why Christ came. Luke chapter 4, earlier on, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. To the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. He went to go and declare the good news of the kingdom of God that we can be saved. He says that's the purpose for which I was sent. Luke emphasizes this, I think, more than any other book in the Bible. It's all throughout the scriptures, but you see, um, you see back in Luke chapter 15, you see a woman looking for a lost coin. She works day and night, blood, sweat, and tears to try and find it. You see the shepherds that have a hundred sheep and they lose one, and they're counting, and they get to 99, and they realize one is missing, and you think, that's a sheep rounding error. Don't even worry about it, and instead, he says, you guys watch these 99, and he goes and seeks the one that is lost, or the father bringing, um, seeking the lost son. You remember the son that goes to him and basically says, you are dead to me, father. And he goes and he squanders everything that his father benevolently gives him. And he goes and he's eating the slop with the pigs, which is especially humiliating for a Jew in that day. And he goes, I just want to go back. Maybe my father will have me and make me one of his servants. And as he is walking back, he sees this crazy man, father, sprinting down the road to greet him because he, he is a representative of God who is a seeker and the saver of the lost. And he says, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. God is the seeker and the saver of the lost. Matthew chapter one, the angel appeared to Joseph when he found out Mary uh, was pregnant and said, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, which is the equivalent of the word Yahweh saves or God saves. And then it says, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth. And then right as we're getting near the end, before he goes to the cross, there's this big exclamation point. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to rescue doomed sinners 
Yeah, he gave a good example. He showed how to keep the law of God perfectly, but he showed that we can't do it. And you see this guy, Zacchaeus, that nobody in the world gave a chance to, and Jesus did. <clears throat> the question, excuse me, the question is, did Zacchaeus really repent? Um, his name is from the Hebrew Zacchaeus, which means pure and righteous. Interesting. We see in the text, we see that he appears to repent. He is, he is shoving even, his response to the grace of Jesus is huge, and then Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. But I want to read you something that we have from church history, um, uh, something called Apostolic Constitutions, written by Clement of Rome. There were eight books. He died um, in about 104, and the earliest copy we have of this is from the 300s. Um, there's multiple sources, I would argue, that affirm this. But I do want you to hear, it's not thus saith the Lord, it's church history. There's a couple different quotes I want to read you. Um, part of this is he's recording something Matthew said. For I, Matthew, the tax collector, one of those 12 who speak to you in this doctrine, am an apostle, having myself been formerly a publican, a tax collector, but now have obtained mercy through believing and have repented of my former practices and have vouchsafed the honor to be an apostle and preacher of the word. And Zacchaeus whom the Lord received upon his repentance and prayers to him was also himself in the same manner a publican at first. And then he goes on a little bit later and he does something quite remarkable. He's talking about the bishops. So bishops or priests or you could think maybe pastors of these different churches. And he goes through and it, it would be what he's about to do is if we were to go, the pastors of Rockland have been Jim and da 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 da, da and, you, and you start going through and you give a history of who it is. That's what he's about to do. Now concerning those bishops which have been ordained in our lifetime, we let you know that they are these. James, the bishop of Jerusalem, the brother of our Lord, upon whose death the second was Simeon, the son of Cleopas, after whom the third was Judas, the son of James. So he just said in Jerusalem, these are the order of, this is the, uh, the pastors, the bishops. And then listen to what he says. Of Caesarea of Palestine, the first was Zacchaeus who was once a publican, a tax collector, after whom was Cornelius and the third Theophilus. It looks like he repented so much, and then he went on to be a leader in the early church. I love picturing myself as Zacchaeus, because I was at one point hiding up in a tree, not just because I'm short and easy. Zacchaeus is up in the tree, hated by everyone, and here he goes. Jesus looks up, sees me, knows me, calls my name, and is not afraid to publicly say, I'm going to your house today. God sought him. He's the seeker and the saver of the lost. Why does it matter? Let me just give you a couple things before we head into communion here. First of all, if you're not a Christian, you need to know that if God can save Zacchaeus, one of the points of the story is he can save you as well. And I, I hate that if um, maybe there's a perception of Christians in the culture or maybe a Christian has done something very personally, deep, deeply hurtful to you, and so that's how you see Christianity right now, know that that's not how Jesus was. That was an aberration. That's a mistake. Um, <clears throat> secondly, if God is seeking and saving the lost, never give up. Never give up on the lost. In fact, 
Um, I would add that if God is the one who does the saving, if he is the seeker of the lost, how we, one of the main things we should do for those that don't know Christ is to pray like crazy. I encourage you to amp up your prayer life for those that don't yet know Jesus Christ. And the third thing, um, if God's grace is really greater than all our sin, when we fail, believe it or not, he stands ready to forgive over and over and over. Not like you and I tend to forgive each other. We go to him, we confess, we repent, and we can be fully restored to our ministry. God is the seeker and the saver of the lost. Um, I came to faith when I was in, uh, I was in middle school, and uh, it was a summer camp. I was like 14 or 13 or something, and they said, if anybody wants to become a Christian, and I don't think I fully understood, and I just felt guilty about some stuff. We had like been picking on this kid and played these pranks and stuff, and I just felt horrible, and so I, I just kind of got up and walked down, and we got back there, and they started asking about salvation. I was like, oh, I just felt bad that we did the prank thing, you know, and, um, and he just kind of explained to me. He said, you probably have this little conscience realizing that everybody's picking on this kid, but God loves them dearly, and there's something in you that's just not sitting right. And it was kind of the messiest, like, conversion conversation ever. And I remember being in that room, talking with a counselor, walking out, talking with another counselor again. And as I left, I thought, wow, what has God done? Something is different. And I came to faith in Christ. God is the one who sought me. God is the one who saved me. And in that moment, it might have felt like I'm the one raising my hand, I'm the one walking forward, I'm the one feeling bad, I'm the one, all that kind of stuff. But now that I'm on the other side, I can look back and I can go, wow, God sought me, God found me, God loves me. When I was just some one of a, however many people living where I was living, God saw me, God knew my name, God loves me, and he came to seek and to save the lost, and he did it with me, and he can do it with you, and he can do it for those people that you love as well. Pray for them like crazy.